years ago, uh, when I was uh, under care, that's the process we call it when um, when a, a person is is being trained for ministry in the Presbyterian Church. Years ago, when I was under care, I had my head examined, and and uh, this is something uh, most Presbyterians require it. Um, I don't know if it's uh, if it's mandatory, but it seems to be uh, a de facto uh, a standard process that that people who are who are being uh, uh, trained for ministry have their head examined and one of the things that that I learned when I had my head examined is that I am an introvert and if you know me uh that will not come as a surprise to you and and it didn't come as a surprise to me what came as a surprise to me is the degree to which I am an introvert um uh, my introvert knob is turned all the way to 11 um in fact uh, if you were to line up a hundred introverts, uh, just completely uh, screen out all the extroverts, but a hundred introverts, if you were to line up a hundred introverts, uh, um, I would be the guy in the end, okay, the most introverted person in a group of a hundred. If you did it with a thousand introverts, I'd be one of the last two or three um, in that group. So, so I'm I'm about as introverted as as they come. Now, uh, when when this uh, fact came out um, as part of the the call process or the the call process, the the care process. Um, during my training for ministry, I was asked, well, well, what are you going to do about it? Because you see, there's really, there's really no, no wrong answers that can come out of that, or, or at least I've never heard of a wrong answer. I've never heard of anybody being, um, excluded because they were, their head was so, so unexaminable or whatever. Uh, and that really, there's a theological reason for it. The idea is that, is that, um, we don't believe that God, um, calls those who are equipped, but rather we believe that God equips those who are called. So, so the question is, okay, you are who you are, and now understanding that, um, what's your what's your strategy for dealing with the 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 person you are, given the realities of ministry? So, uh, what in my case, I said, you know, I don't know. Tell me what what are some good ideas? How do you how do you deal with this um, in a context of ministry? And and what we came up with uh, the committee that was overseeing my care, and and I came up with was what I think of as as the opposite strategy. From what I did in my previous church, the the church, my home church, when I was uh, just a regular uh, pew sitting person, and that was um, uh, uh, the opposite. Because what I'd done in the in that church was ignore the people with the blue cups. We had we had a fellowship uh, activity after our service, um, just like this church does. But uh, our church here has regular, you know, just a, a random mix of people's mugs. They come from different events and so forth, garage sales. And so there's a bunch of different mugs all randomly, uh, randomly, uh, uh, marked. But at the church I was attending at the time, we had special mugs, white mugs for, for regular members and blue mugs for visitors. And the idea was when you saw somebody with a blue mug, you were supposed to go, go, uh, chat them up. And what I would do is I would go hide from them because, <laughs> because I'm an introvert. And, and so, um, so what we cooked up was this strategy of not doing that. So that was the, the big, the big idea was, was to, to actually do, go during fellowship time to the people at the, the church. I, I was in a, a church for my field education. And, uh, my, my supervisor would actually quiz me each week. How many people did I talk to? And, and what did I learn? What's, what are some three facts you learned about that person? And so, so I got through it. And what I discovered is that, you know, I can do all things through, him who strengthens me, um, because I could get through that process, and it would wear me out completely to work the room, and and, and it really was working the room because it was work. Um, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with the individual people. It's just that there's a room full of them, and that was what made it work. <laughs> and and so uh, I learned that that I could work the room, and I still work the room. You'll you'll see me over there today, um, 
And if I'm wincing, it's not because I have a problem with you personally. It's because I, um, I've just been working the room and it wears me out. Um, and I have to go back to the, the, uh, uh, my, my house after the service and curl up in a ball and sleep until about, you know, 4 p.m. or something. And then I'm good. But, um, but, uh, that's just the way, that's just the way I am. And, and, um, that's how God, God made me. And it's particularly hard today, I have to say, because of this uh, Alaska Methodist Conference. I spent the last two days uh, working a room full of strangers, um, and uh, God, God loved them. They, they put up with me anyhow. So, um, but, but I have to tell you, that's one of the things, and Sharon can tell you, that's one of the things uh, that, that makes denominational gatherings such a joy for me, um, is because I completely wear myself out, and then on Sunday I go uh, do the same thing at church. So, so. Denominational activities are not my favorite thing in the whole world, um, but but I like denominations at least in the abstract um, because they, they they serve a good purpose. And and I'll just tell you one little tiny purpose that that um, the denominations serve is they they keep track of statistics, which can be pretty dry. But um, I saw this statistic in a in a Methodist history of Jewel Lake Parish. It was actually a, a history of the Methodist Conference, but it had like a page for Jewel Lake Parish, and in it it said that on Easter of 1980, Jewel Lake Parish had 286 people in worship. Now, uh, you know, I, I look around and I can't figure, you know, they must have been jammed up there in the loft or something. I don't know where where they put 286 people. And there's just that one stat. It doesn't tell me how many there were the week before. It doesn't tell me how many were here the week after. It doesn't tell me where they're... Two services, three services, five services. I don't know how did they manage to get 286 people in here, or maybe it was out in the parking lot. I don't, I don't know. But just that one very provocative statistic, how did they get 286 people in here? And it started me thinking, and I started imagining, what would it be like to work the room with a church of 286 people? So, um, uh, and I thought that might be kind of difficult. So, <clears throat> So I, I started thinking about, you know, working the room and, you know, maybe it would be several services. Would it be easier to work a room with 300 people in it or would it be easier to work um, a room with 100 people three times? And I'm, you know, trying to think what, what would be, what would be, you know, the, the practical reality of, of, of a church that size and, and how that would work for me. And then I started thinking about other practical matters, you know, the, the parking, you know, uh, where, where would you park uh, uh, 300 people? Uh, you know, where, where, who, who would you get to do Sunday school? You know, um, as a pastor, you start thinking about, that means that you'd have three or four times as many, uh, people in the hospital at any given moment. You know, you start thinking about the practical realities. Um, and I'm just thinking, man, you know, how did they do that? You know, who is this, who is this hero who is the pastor in 1980? And I just started thinking about, you know, kind of the practical reality of, of what would it be like, uh, serving a church that size, um, uh, in, in, in 1980 when, when they had 286 people here in worship. And I know some of you are probably thinking the same thing. Um, and there's even a reason why you're thinking it. Um, the reason it has a name. It is Dunbar's number. How many of you ever heard of Dunbar's number? All right. Dunbar's number is, is this idea that regardless what Facebook tells you, you know, you have 395 friends. Um, no, a Dunbar's number says you have 150 friends that somehow built into you is like 150 slots that you're allowed to be part of a tribe of about 150 people. Um, and, and that's just kind of built into us as people. 
And, and when you get your 151st, well, the one who you are least friendly with uh, kind of slides out the back end, okay? Because, you know, you've only got room for 150 relationships. So, um, so after that, you may know their name or you might be able to think of their name after a few minutes. Who is that guy? Um, but, but you have room in your head. You have room in you for 150 relationships. And that's Dunbar's number. So if you think to yourself, well, I've got people at work. Okay. I've got people at home. I've got people in the neighborhood. I've got, I've got some, some social activities I'm part of. And if I come to church, you know, there's just frankly not that many people left over. I've got 150 to start with. And, and, you know, I just don't want to be part of a church with 6,000 people because, because I don't have room for 6,000 relationships. So, so that's one of the reasons that we kind of, we kind of stress out over the thought of being part of a, a large church. And it's why small churches are, are, it's one of, one of the reasons why small churches are popular. Um, uh, most churches uh, in in the Presbyterian Church, and I believe this is true for the Methodists as well. Uh, the the majority of churches in the Presbyterian Church have under a hundred members. So so it's not at all uncommon to be part of a small smaller family sized church. And, and Dunbar's number is one of the reasons. And of course, you probably have other other reasons like me, the pragmatic reasons. You know, where would I park? Uh, what would happen if I came to church and somebody was in my seat? Um, uh, you know. Um, uh, if we had four times as many children in Sunday school, how could I ever tune out the Holy Spirit calling me to teach Sunday school? And I'll let you and the Holy Spirit work that one out. Um, because because that would be a real reality. Um, there are practical things that would come up if we had that size church. Um, uh, uh, which Which service has the better music? Um, which service is the pastor least bad at preaching in? Um, these are the, these are the sort of practical questions you'd come up with and you'd say, well actually, I have ten people left over in my Dunbar number and, and so I actually have room for ten friends at church, but what if they all go to the other service? You know, what do I do then? You know, so, so there are these pragmatic questions people have about, about a church uh, being too large. And what is interesting to me is that when we look at Jesus, we don't see any sign that these are the things that concern Jesus. We, we don't get a hint anywhere in Scripture whether Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert. Now, I will tell you, I notice sometimes after he's been dealing with a crowd all day long, he escapes up to a hill and spends the night praying. So I like to think of Jesus as, a, as an introvert. So he needs that kind of time to, to refresh and, and restore his soul. Um, so I like to claim Jesus as one of my tribe. Um, but, uh, you know, and you extroverts, just good luck. But, um, but, uh, but I don't know. There's nothing in the scriptures that tell us was Jesus energized by his, his interactions with crowds or was, was it something that he had to put a lot of energy into? We don't know. What we do see over and over again is that when Jesus sees the crowds, he's traveling all over Galilee. He's in the synagogues. He's on the hillsides. He's talking to people about God. He's electrifying crowds with what he has to teach them about God. He's healing every kind of disease. And when he looks at the crowds, he doesn't think about parking. He doesn't think about who gets the best pew. What Jesus has is compassion. And this word compassion is a very strong word. It's, it's, it means to have a feeling deep in the center of your, of your emotional self. Um, literally what it translates is, is to be moved in your bowels. And that's because in that culture, people thought that the bowels were the center of emotion. And sometimes you've probably had, you know, a sinking feeling in your gut 
or are you gut-wrenching? You know, we, we have a trace of that in our own culture, but mostly we say our emotions are in our heart. Unless we're scientists and then we say, no, our emotions are not in our heart. They're in our brain or somewhere, uh, but they're not in our heart. So it sounds kind of silly, you know, bowels versus heart, but Jesus was deeply moved at the core of his emotional being. Jesus looked at this crowd and he felt compassion. This word for compassion, though, has another has another meaning. It is a compassion that is not simply a feeling. It is a feeling that motivates to action. Jesus cannot feel compassion without being motivated to action. So, for example, elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us how Jesus looked at a crowd that was hungry. They had been listening to him all day long. He was They were hungry, and Jesus was moved with compassion. And what that did is it motivated him to feed the multitude. Or he tells a parable about a slave who came in to tell a master, I don't have the money, uh, you, you gave me some money, I don't have it, please be patient with me. And the master is moved with compassion, and his compassion leads him to forgive the debt. So this word is about a deep kind of feeling that leads to action. And Jesus sees this crowd, and he is moved with compassion, because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in the Bible, the, the thing with agricultural metaphors is there's a ton of them because it was an agricultural society, and they were meant to clarify things. They were meant to take the, the kind of abstract uh, uh, world of God that we can't possibly figure out and bring them down to earth, make them something that's more accessible. And so so today, the only problem with that is most of us aren't shepherds and most of us aren't farmers, so we have to unpack them a little bit. But they're not too hard, right? When you hear something about sheep without a shepherd, what do you think? You think, okay, well, sheep, I don't know if I like the thought of uh, people being sheep, but it's pretty clear why sheep need a shepherd, uh, because they are like little little roving um, ham sandwiches or something for for predators, um, you know, if you if you grew up watching cartoons, you'd see whenever Wiley e. Coyote would would look at the Roadrunner, he'd see the little dotted lines with the different cuts of of meat. Um, that's basically the way a lion or a, or a wolf sees a sheep out in the w- wilderness. Um, he says, "Okay, that's the haunch, and you know, the yummy part." Okay, and and that's the reality. That's why you need a shepherd. When when David, King David, is uh, before he's king, a uh, little David with his sling, he's going to fight Goliath. And the king says, you can't possibly fight Goliath. Uh, you're, you're just a little kid. And he says, sure, I can fight Goliath. I'm a shepherd. And I'm used to this stuff. Whenever, whenever a bear or a lion comes after my sheep, I grab my sling and I go hunt him down and I kill him and then I bring my sheep back. He says, I, of course I can take on this Philistine. That's no problem. Uh, uh, if you remember the, 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 the Christmas story, shepherds are, um, in that region, there were shepherds keeping watch over their field by night. We hear that story in Luke chapter 2. Shepherds uh, put themselves at great risk, but they also put themselves at great inconvenience. They are people who, who, for whom the safety and the security of the sheep outweighs their own convenience and their own security. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says that the, the crowd that is harassed and helpless is like sheep who lack a shepherd. And in fact, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. So he says, he says, I am filled with compassion. I am moved with compassion because of this crowd. And, um, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, 
Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his field. Now, if Matthew had had a good editor, the editor would have said, hey, Matthew, you're mixing your metaphors. You can't go from sheep directly to growing plants that quickly because people kind of lose track of what you're saying. But Matthew says, look, I'm just quoting Jesus, so I'll, you have to live with it. So so Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Um, and, and so ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. And again, another agricultural metaphor, uh, but it's pretty straightforward. Uh, what's the what's the significance of the harvest? The harvest is the point you're waiting for. Once in a while, in, in the scriptures, we see, because it is such a common metaphor, occasionally in the scriptures we see harvest means kind of you reap what you sow. You've been sowing bad things, and so you're going to get a bitter harvest, right? We do see that from time to time, but overall, harvest is a good thing. Uh, there were three mandatory holidays in the Jewish religion. Two of them are harvest festivals. So there's a there's a spring harvest festival and then a fall harvest festival. Two out of the three holidays are harvest festivals. Harvests are good things. Um, it's it's when all your anxiety. It's like, well, are the locusts going to show up this year? Are the are the rains going to show up and destroy the crops? Uh, until harvest, you don't know. But once you've brought in the crop, then all the anxiety goes away, and you have now got food to last you for the next year. So harvest is a good thing. And Jesus says the harvest isn't the problem. The harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are the problem. There's just not enough workers. So he says to get the crop in before the locusts come or before before the rains come and destroy it, there needs to be more workers. So he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, ask the overseer, ask the, the man who is in charge of the reapers um, that he would send more workers into his field. And that's really the application for us. The application for us is to do the same thing, to pray to the one who is in charge of the harvest that he would send workers into his field. And I guess the question is, how much are we going to let the way we struggle with the practical questions, the practical questions of, of does, does church energize you or does it wear you out? Um, uh, will you find your parking spot? Um, uh, where will we find musicians for a second service? Uh, do we let those practical, pragmatic questions, the, the, the things that matter to us, outweigh what Jesus says? And I think, I think honestly, as I've been thinking about this, I've been wondering, maybe there's even a secondary question behind that one, which is, uh, do I really believe Jesus when he says the harvest is plentiful? You know, one of the things that came out of the Methodist conference uh, this week was that uh, someone came up and, uh, and back in March, we sent in all of our numbers. And so we got the final statistical report. And the person who gave the report kept trying to come up with nicer words than dismal. You know, all, all the statistics were, you know, a, a horrible and, and scary, and, and I forget all the words, but, but she was trying to come up with nicer words. But the reality is the numbers don't look good in the Methodist conference, um, that, that in almost every metric, we're down a couple of percentage from the point, from the year before. It's not a crisis. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, you know, abandon ship. But on the other hand, if the Methodist conference were a stock, you wouldn't want any in your 401k. It's just the truth. Um, and, and the Presbyterian church is no better. And in fact, Bishop Grant said, said, you know, the, the good news is we're not sinking as fast as the Presbyterian church. So, so there you go. Uh, 
so as a Presbyterian, I, I, uh, I wish I could have taken umbrage at it, but it's true. So, so I, I look at the statistics and I have to ask myself, well, maybe Jesus just isn't right. Maybe the harvest really isn't that plentiful. Maybe he's just somehow mistaken. And I do wonder about that. But, you know, I think we all know that there are exceptions too. If the Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church have been declining, you've heard me tell the story about my little uh, my little man crush church I've got um, on uh, in 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 Colorado in, in um, Lafayette, Colorado. There's a church called Flatirons, and the pastor. Um, you don't know it, but for the last uh, five or six years, I've been listening to his podcast, and I've been stealing all the best lines and bringing them in here. Um, so, and and the rest is me. Sorry, um, but. Uh, but I've been quoting Jim Bergen now for the last couple of years. He just came out with a book, and I really recommend it, um, No More Dragons by Jim Bergen, uh, the sickly green color. You can identify it by. Um, uh, when I first started listening to their podcast, he'd been at that church about two years, and this church had 6,800 people in it. That's a big church. You know, that's about um, 10, 100 times the size of this church, um, roughly. Uh, so um, 6,800 people. And uh, I started listening to their podcast, and uh, that was in 2008. And earlier this year, uh, they, they had during the during the in, interim, they had they had uh, moved across the the street to a former Walmart. There had been a you know one of these WalMarts that became a super Walmart, and now the shell of the old one sitting there. They bought that shell, um, and and they they made it their church. And uh, they grew until they they had expanded beyond that, and they opened up their second ser- second uh, campus uh, somewhere else in the Denver area. And the last service at their single campus, uh, the last set of services, the last weekend at their at their single campus, they had seventeen thousand people in attendance. Seventeen thousand people from sixty eight hundred, so a huge number, a gargantuan number, honestly, had had almost tripled during six years. Uh, because the harvest is plentiful. Um, a- after after they had begun uh, the services in in two two campuses, um, this uh, Easter they had thirty three thousand three hundred and twenty nine people in worship over the course of the Easter weekend. And because they come out of the Baptist tradition, where you know they they count how many times and and you know they keep big records on on um, baptisms, uh, they had a baptism weekend uh, earlier this month. They baptized twelve hundred people. In the course of a weekend. And so I say to myself, you know, just because I'm not seeing the harvest here in my mainline uh, church, that doesn't mean that Jesus was wrong. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful and it's the workers who are few. So we struggle. We struggle because we have, we have these, these uh, conflicting emotions about, am I going to have enough energy? Is there going to be parking? All the practical things, Sunday school, music, all the things that come up. And, and probably honestly, if you've been in a mainline church long enough, you start to wonder, well, maybe Jesus is wrong. But Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. And so he tells us to pray. And he does not suggest it. This is not, you know, it'd be nice it'd be, if you guys, you know, if you felt like it, go ahead and pray. This is a command. Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And the reason is because this is a passion area for Jesus. Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion on them. He sees people who are harassed and helpless, people who've got messy lives, people who think the reason their life is a mess is because God hates them. 
People whose relationships are a mess. People whose finances are a mess. People who can't hold a job. People who can't get beyond an addiction. Jesus says, I have compassion on that crowd. They are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his field. So I was wrestling with this. I was trying to figure out how do I put these together because the reality is I have trouble praying for for a a, a big harvest. Uh, I think of all these things that would make it difficult for me. And I think of the clarity of Jesus' instruction where he says, that doesn't matter because this is an area that I really care about. And what came to me was the story from Ruth, this wonderful story from the Old Testament. The the foreigner has has come to to uh, Israel. Uh, she's starving. She and her mother-in-law are literally starving. And so what she does is she goes out and gleans in the field behind the harvesters. And when she's there gleaning behind the harvesters, Boaz comes up and says, who is that? And the worker, the, the Lord of the harvest, actually, the, the man in charge of the reapers, he says, he says it's the foreigner, uh, Ruth, she's from Moab. And Boaz says, he says, uh, listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. And I thought to myself, maybe that's, maybe that's how I can put this all together is, is if Jesus says, look, Pray for a harvest. And I say, but yeah, but I'm, I, yeah, but I've got all these, I've got all these concerns about a harvest. That Jesus, through Boaz, is speaking to me and he's saying, he's saying, stick close to the harvest. Because this is an area where I work. And if you want me to be at work in your life, you have to be near where I'm working. He says, so stick close behind the harvesters. See what they're doing. Because that's how you'll have me in your life. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into his field because he has compassion on the crowd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we're, we're not even sure if Jesus was right. We look at the numbers, 50 years now of decline, 40 years of decline in our, in our denomination, and we say, where are these harvests, Lord? Um, and it, and it, and it makes us, it makes us suspicious. We hear about a church that's growing, uh, and we say, well, they must be doing something wrong. So Lord, first of all, help us to hear what Jesus has to say. Help us to understand it comes out of, uh, not a consensus, a, a, a desire for numbers, but out of a compassion for sheep without a shepherd. And then Lord, help us to stick close to the harvesting work. Help us to find you as we follow close behind. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.